You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Should get a little recording notice. I did. Awesome. Okay, we'll get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am extremely excited to be joined today by Dr. Beverly Malone. Under Dr. Beverly Malone's leadership, the National League of Nursing has advanced the science of nursing education through enhancing stakeholder collaboration, increasing diversity in the nursing scholarship, and championing evidence-based practice. Dr. Malone's distinguished career has blended policy, education, administration, and clinical practice, including as Federal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health under President Bill Clinton. Presently, Dr. Malone serves as Vice Chair at the Institute of Healthcare Improvement Board of Directors, co-leads the National Academy of Medicine Health Professional Education. Most recently, in 2022, Dr. Malone was listed in Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare for the third consecutive year. She was honored by the American Nurses Association with the prestigious President's Award, and Villanova University selected her for the M. Louise Fitzpatrick Award for Transformative Leadership. Dr. Malone was named one of the 50 most influential clinical executives by Modern Healthcare, and she was featured as one of 25 outstanding women for Women's History Month by diverse issues in higher education. Modern Healthcare honored her with a Top 25 Women's Leader Luminary Award in 2021, named her to the inaugural list of five minority healthcare luminaries, and included her uh, amongst 100 most influential people in healthcare. She was previously honored in their list of top 25 women in healthcare. Additionally, the International Society for Psychiatric Mental Health Nurses honored her with the Living Legends Award. In 2020, Dr. Malone was ranked number five in modern healthcare's top 100 influential people. She was also bestowed the Gail L. Warden Leadership Excellence Award by the National Center for Healthcare Leadership and conferred by the American Academy of Nursing with their highest nursing honor, Living Legend. Dr. Malone has earned additional accolades, including the Florence Nightingale Award, induction into the Home Care and Hospice Hall of Fame, and the Nursing Hall of Fame from Tuskegee University in Alabama. She received a fellowship ad iundum of the Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery from the Royal College of Surgeons, Ireland. Dr. Malone has received more than 20 honorary doctorates, both domestically and abroad, including from Georgetown University. In 1996, she was elected to two terms as president of the American Nurses Association, representing over 180,000 nurses in the U.S. A recognized global leader, Dr. Malone 
served as General Secretary of Royal College of Nursing of the United Kingdom. Dr. Malone was also Vice Chair of the Brussels-based European Federation of Nurses Association. Furthermore, she has the distinguished honor of her portrait being displayed at the National Portrait Gallery in London, United Kingdom. And her full bio for all of our listeners is going to be on the website. So please visit. There's a lot I cut out of here for. So we have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Malone. Uh, so welcome to the show, Dr. Malone. Thank you so very much. Uh, so I will get right to it and uh, start with the question. How did you decide nursing was going to be the path for you? Well, Ali, I was raised by my great-grandmother, and uh, she was a healer in the community. She had only gotten to the third grade in school, but she was a herbalist, and she would take me out into the countryside and say, she never pronounced my name the way I understood it to be. She called me Bable, and she would say, Bable, go pick that and pick that, and she, I would, and she would rub it all together and put it on a baby's head and hair would grow. She was just phenomenal and the community loved her. And so it was her desire very early on that I would be a nurse. And I just wanted to be like her. Amazing, amazing. Um, I love that. I love the idea of the community healer um, because so many times like we don't, uh, we don't recognize them and we still have them in the communities. Many communities still have those healers around. So. Amazing. Um, how did you decide where you're going to go to school or what, what, what path you were going to take uh, once you were actually in school? Well, it was very interesting because when I was in high school, um, at the end, you know, getting toward my senior year, my counselor said, well, you know, you're so bright. Thank you very much. And <laughs> so we, we would, I think you should go to a diploma school, at the U Louisville Hospital School of Nursing. Since, you know, that's where if you're really bright and you're black, that's where you would go. Wow. And um, I was a majorette at the school at the time, and they didn't have a band at a hospital diploma school of nursing. And I mean, right. how could I be a majorette <laughs> at a hospital program? And so I said, no, no, I've got to go to a university because I might want to be a majorette. Um, and then another one of my colleagues who was who happened to be white, uh, her name was Bridget, and she said that her father told her that if she was going to be a nurse, she had to be a baccalaureate prepared nurse and go to a university. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for Bridget, it must be good enough for Beverly. And <laughs> with that background, I'd made the decision that I would go to a university. My mother and my sisters and my brother, they all lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I had never lived with my mother. I was raised by my great grandmother. And I decided, well, I could actually live with my original family and go to school at the University of Cincinnati. So I only applied to one school. And that was, and fortunately they accepted me. And that's how I made the decision to get my baccalaureate degree. And that's how I made the decision to go to Cincinnati. Wow, amazing. Um... How common, when, when you were doing that, how common was it to have a Black woman at a university um, in the nursing program? Were you a one-of-one one or were you were there other? No, uh, we started out with one of five. I was mm. the only one to graduate, though. Wow. Yeah, wow. it was not a good story. Um, my colleagues, they were bright, wonderful. I mean, and they some of them went to other places after it didn't work out at 
at the program there. But you, I mean, I was a top student and even you had to be, if you were black, you had to be a top student in order just to graduate, which made no sense at all. You know, there, you can be a great nurse and not necessarily be at the top of your class because you can actually be a poor nurse and be at the top of your class. Um, so I was very saddened by the loss of my colleagues to start out with five of us and end up with only one. I was, I think the third or fourth nurse to ever graduate who was black from the University of Cincinnati at the time. Well, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, the reason I, I, I brought that up and I'm kind of diverge from um, um, what I normally ask uh, along the way, but um, you, you mentioned you mentioned you're one of five that that I, or the one that graduated out of the five. Um, are we doing enough? Um, and the reason I'm asking this is I don't want to forget it later. Are we doing enough in nursing? Um, and I kind of know the answer to this. <laughs> are we doing enough to actually be inclusive of the diverse populations? Because if you look at our numbers, we are still primarily uh, white women. Um, in the profession of nursing. And we talk about a lot about diversity and I've had previous guests that have had their own opinions around this. Um, what are we, I, sh I should just ask, what are we not doing to be more inclusive and supportive of diverse nurses within the communities that we're serving? Well, first of all, we're doing better than we were. Right. So everybody pat themselves on the back and say, we're not where we used to be. It, it's not one out of five. You know, right. that, and only the one graduates. Right. Um, but there's plenty of room to do better. And the population that we serve needs more diversity and inclusion. The people that we care for. And we know that patients do better when they have people who remind them of themselves and who look like themselves. So there needs to be some level of inclusion, not just numbers, but inclusion. And that means in terms of leadership positions, uh, and who make the rules and expectations and all of that, those decision makers. We need nurses of color who are in those roles and responsibilities. So I'm thinking that it's like any other issue that we would address. We just don't usually do it well. I mean, if, if I'm, I was a dean of nursing for about 10 years and most deans, when you have a problem, you put together a strategic plan, you identify what the issue is, and then you put together the plan, you find the resources to support you moving in that way and you get there, right? And it may take you three to five years to make that kind of um, transformational process. What I find happens is that, that there's not usually the resources assigned to the strategic plan. So people may have ideas, but they may do one little piece and suddenly nothing else is done. Or you get someone to do it who's, who's black and already there and they find that all they're doing is being the, the person or the person of color, whether it's Hispanic or black or uh, international, that everybody's coming to them. And so they don't get their scholarship done. They don't get what they need to survive in the system for themselves. Right. And they find themselves on the fringe, hmm. trying to take care of the population, but at the same time being used. And so not their well-being is at risk by right. taking care of everyone else. So you can't do that. It's got to be a strategic way of going about it. You've got to actually identify someone where their life is not tied up with uh, publish or perish. 
because they've got students that they need to address and take care of and support and help them through the system. And that means money, that means finances to support the dream, to support the goal. And so what I find is that we all know how to do strategic plans and we have to actually set aside, allocate the dollars to support that over a time period. I mentioned to you three to five years. So it's not like one uh, semester you can find money and then, oh my goodness, we've got something else came along, we've got to do that. And so the money just disappears. and the process is interrupted and disrupted and it, there's nothing smooth about it. There's nothing that says, this is a journey that we intend to go on with a high level of commitment. It takes that to make a difference. It does, it does. Um, in your opinion, how does, how much are university systems um, also integrated or have those systemic um, biases because we attract um for example uh nurses uh, of color but then they have as you mentioned they have that time period where they have to uh get grants and publish and do everything that they need to do but they are also being pulled into a lot of dei work right oh uh, yeah the representative on committees the representative as whatever you else. got it so that's how they're so how much do you think system systems are actually changing to support are they are we are we changing fast enough to support the diversity of faculty that we need uh and and the systems that are sort of in place now? I, I do believe that we're trying. I don't believe that it's fast enough, but I give E for effort. I, you know, yeah. I don't want to discourage anybody. I, you know, just because it's taking you a little bit longer, if you have a commitment, if you understand you've got to have resources that go beyond your basic budget and that you can't rob Peter to pay Paul. So right. we're going to do this for diversity over here, but the basic salaries of faculty is going to suffer. Who wants to stay? People right. of color don't want to stay and people who are not of color don't. I mean, nobody wants, we're not going to be paid. Right. Uh, so it, it's that understanding that it's going to take some additional resources and it's going to be a time period. It's like any strategic plan. You have to look at it over time. It's a three to five years for transformation to actually occur in any system for a cultural shift. And I just think that um, many programs don't have the long-term commitment mm. to making it happen. That yeah. something else comes up and blows them out of the water or the Dean changes, you know, Deans are changing like we're playing um, musical chairs. <laughs> and, um, and so that the commitment was there, but because of new leadership, voila, no longer the commitment. And so it gets interrupted. And so where it was off to perhaps a very good start, it gets disrupted. So, I mean, there are all of these real issues. And then structural racism is just part of the fabric of the organization. So we're talking about a cultural shift and it doesn't mean you wipe it all out. I don't believe you eliminate it. I think you acknowledge it mm. and you plan to work around it and how to get through it, over it, under it, whatever you need to do, but it's not that it disappears. Right. So I think some realistic, and I always believe in you hire a consultant to come in and say the things that nobody will say. I call them your hired gun. You know, they mm. come in like the wild, wild west and they shoot up the town. They can walk out, they go back, you know, they're gone. 
but it's harder for the people who live in that right. organization to say those very difficult things that need to be said in order for people to know where to start. Very true, very true, thank you. Um, I want to get, go uh, as long as we're on the topic and we're talking about diversity, um, where do you think we should start recruiting? Because I think, you know, by the time people get into college, which is where a lot of where a lot of the recruitment happens, I think it might be a little late. Yeah. And I see a lot of people looking at different avenues of how do we attract yeah. more diversity. You know, we were talking about that the other day. And when I was a dean, I was a dean for 10 years at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. We started a, a future nurses club in high schools. I don't know why they weren't, they were there when I was coming through. I don't know what happened to them, but something that gives young people an opportunity to focus at an early stage of the game right. and to start understanding how great nursing is and to work in some of the hospitals or home care settings where they can be candy stripers or assistants or something that gives you some idea, some reflection of whether or not you can even talk to patients whether you can even be there to with the families or whether you, you find it not a good place for you. I mean, it's a really kind of a tryout area. Right. So I think things like future nurses clubs in, and it doesn't just have to be in high school. Why couldn't it be in middle schools right. that you could show an interest early on in the game and those who were interested could get more information. You wouldn't, I wouldn't drive it home, but by the time they get to high school, they might have the opportunity to work in a setting where they could actually find out if they have the, the taste for it, the right. attraction to it. The other thing is that uh, we worked with the counselors in the high school. You remember when I talked to you about my decision to become a nurse, that I had talked to my counselor who gave me a really poor recommendation to go to a diploma school. But those counselors are the gatekeepers. Right. They are the, your traffic cops, you know, who say who goes through this lane, who goes through that lane. This area is blocked off. So we need if they don't know about nursing and about how it has changed and how it is really an opportunity to advance your life and, and that it's the goal card for almost any type of nursing you wanna do. I can work with children, I can work with older adults, I can be a psychiatric mental health nurse and work with everybody because everyone's got psych problems. There are just so many options in nursing. I can work here in the States, I can work in abroad, I can work in a number of different ways. It is, nursing is such a creative opportunity. Major. And then I also know that I'm useful. I know that I make a difference in the world. I have meaning to my life. Nursing provides that. So I am totally in love and all in awe of the profession that I chose. And I recommend it to everybody. And I don't, you can be over 50. It's not too late to become a nurse. You can go and get a degree in sociology. Oh, come on back. You can do your BSN in two years and get that master's also. We have a fast track for you. All you need is a degree in another field and we'll put you and have the desire to be a nurse. Yeah, very true. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, your passion for the profession just flows through our recording. So thank you. Um, I want to get back to your career. Um, uh, how was your first, so you graduated uh, your, from your baccalaureate uh, program. Um, how was your first uh, job in the world of nursing and how did you decide where your career was going to lead you? 
well, I worked all the time I was in school. You know, I had to work in order to pay for my, the part that my scholarship, my didn't pay for, I needed to pay for it. So I worked all the time. And I went directly from my undergraduate degree to my master's. And I did because the government came out with um, a proposal and they said, basically, if you decide to become a psychiatric mental health nurse, we will pay for your last two years of your baccalaureate degree and two years of a master's program in psych nursing anywhere in the country. Wow. I was not a psych nurse. Psych was not my best area. They kept telling me to read between the lines. I couldn't even find the lines. <laughs> it made absolutely no sense to me. And But the money was looking very good. And there's a very practical side to me. And I said, well, you know, I've got to fall in love with this stuff some kind of way. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but they are offering me two years of paid education here at the university and then two more years for my master's anywhere in the country. Uh, I'm going to become a psych nurse. I was an orthopedic nurse. Extraordinary. I loved it. So that's how I changed my major. I mean, my focus, not my major, my specialty area to psych nursing. And I went to Rutgers where Peplau was the chair of my department. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, a, a giant, nothing but a giant in nursing, the mother of psychiatric nursing. So I was so fortunate to have that opportunity. And I did two years there. So when I came out, I was about 22, 23, 20, no, was I 22? Yeah, something like that. I was, and I, I was a clinical nurse specialist. And so I started to work right away. My first job though, I was teaching. I taught right after my master's program at, in Detroit, Michigan, at the university there, uh, Wayne State University, taught psych nursing. And I had a great time. And then I became a psych uh, clinical nurse specialist at a hospital, university hospital, who had never had a clinical nurse specialist. So I wrote my own job description. They said, we'll give you a caseload on the eighth floor where, where psychiatry was. I said, no, I'll take that, but I want the entire house. I mm. believe that everybody is a little unbalanced when they get sick. And I believe staff need psychiatric support. And I want the whole system. And they said, well, we've never had one like you, so we'll give you everything. So I was the consultant for the entire hospital and I had a great time. I, you know, they would call me if a, a surgeon acted out on one of the floors and I would go see him and he needed just some time out, you know? And it was that time of the month for him. So I was able to have the time of my life from working with burn patients where moms had, or dads had done some horrible things to their children about hot water in tubs, you know, wow. just crazy yeah. stuff. To working with staff who couldn't work with certain patients and yet didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on with them mm. as to how it affected the care and how it affected the families. Uh, I remember young one young black man who had been shot in the back, in the leg by the policeman. And he was on the, he was on the orthopedic floor, which is my favorite anyway, but they had put him all the way in the back of the unit so they could avoid him because when his family came in, his family was loud and boisterous and he was, flirting with all the nurses, but it was, I don't know if you remember, but the time of mini skirts, when we wore very short, even nursing uniforms, and there was a lot going on. And so the nurses didn't understand the part that they played in this whole thing. And 
the young man was abusive verbally. And so I had to help him understand he would not be able to survive. <laughs> he kept behaving that way because no one wanted to care for him when he was shouting and yelling at them and they were afraid of him. And so I was the one who would barter the situation between the staff and the patient, helping them to understand each other and helping nurses to understand our role in terms of taking care of people and understanding what we bring to the situation. And I loved the work. I had a great time. So that was my first, my first big job was being that clinical nurse specialist that they'd never had before. That's amazing. Um, and it's very, um, it's, it's very visionary for somebody to walk into an institution and say, yes, I'll take that. But I also want these other components that they've never, that they've never had. Um, and good for them for saying yes to, to yeah. uh, what you wanted to do. So yeah. that's, they just didn't know better. <laughs> um, and, and when I worked, when I worked with Peplau, what she did was she took my little frame I'm from Elizabethtown, Kentucky, right? And she took that frame that I have and she did this with it. Just expanded. And it. basically said, you can do anything you want to do. You're a nurse. You're a psychiatric mental health nurse. You are a clinical nurse specialist with a master's degree in psych nursing. Go take on the world. Wow. And I believed it. I bought it whole. You know, I'd seen her do it. So. Yeah. You know, when you see someone do it, it makes it so much easier for you to just say, I can do that too. Yeah. When you have the mentors and the role models, it becomes better it really believe does, it. And it really I've been so fortunate easy. to have some of the most wonderful mentors and role models. Great. I appreciate that. Um, so you've um I mean, I mean, besides your clinical work, um, I mean, just reading your your full bio, you have accomplished um so much uh from from as a leader in nursing um and and thankfully you've been recognized for a lot of this work yeah um how do you how did you decide that you were going to take on a leadership role yeah. uh in nursing and help uh guide the profession yeah well you know i was um working in at university hospital night duty and uh, this was just when I was in school, you know, and I really thought I was, no, I knew I was good. It wasn't about thinking. I knew I may, I had an effect on patients. I knew they got better. I didn't know why exactly they got better, but whatever it was, it was something about the way I interacted with patients and the knowledge that, I, that had been shared with me and that I'd soaked up about giving good quality, safe care and understanding families that, you know, people are not, even if you are the only person there, you came from a system of a family, no matter how long ago, and it's still affecting you. So I thought one day I said, oh, so you're so good. I'm talking to myself. You're all this in a bag of chips, right? We, they don't really need just one of you. We need an army. Mm. Of nurses who know they're good, of nurses who know that they have something to offer. We need an army of nurse leaders. So what are you going? Are you just going to stay with Bev Malone? <laughs> she does such a good job. I'm so proud of her. <laughs> Look in the mirror. I like you a lot. Um, no, you owe more. You you've got to do more. If you think you're all this, then that means you have to give at a different level of the system. You've got to take whatever has been given to you. 
and you've got to share it with others so they can even do greater things and more things. That's what the patients need. That's the people we care for. It's just not enough to be the only one from eight to three, you give great care. Well, what happens when you go home? What happens when you're not there? What happens when you, so you cannot say you're doing a great job in nursing. This was me talking to myself. Right. If you know that you can inspire and work with other people and help them to do more. And that's when I became a leader. And Peplau said, when I was in my graduate program, the first day that I arrived, she said, if you don't want to be a leader, you can leave now. Wow. And I remember having to make the decision also there that, well, <laughs> I'd like to stay. I mean, somebody's paying for this education for me. I think I hadn't thought about it because I really kind of an individual loner kind of person. I think I'll be a leader so I can stay. That's great. That's great. Um, what was your first um, like national platform um, that that kind of like maybe set you up for where you are today? Because you are recognized. Well, you're recognized as a global leader, um, but what was your first like national platform that you said, okay, now I'm making difference on this scale? Uh, well, I went from being a clinical nurse specialist, psychiatric clinical nurse specialist, to getting my doctorate in clinical psychology. Mm. And after that, I started running, uh, I went back to work at a hospital in management and administration. And so I created a department of clinical nurse specialists called a consultation department. And basically I had them work the way I worked, mm. which was still very innovative. I mean, no one was doing it the way that I'd done it, take over the whole house, you know? Right. Uh, and, and to make money, to, that nursing should not just be a cost center, it should be a revenue center. Right. So, I had about 25 nurses, incredible nurses in burns and um, nephrology. I mean, you name it, I had every specialty you can imagine. And I, out of that came a, a midwifery program where we made about $3 million a year. Out of that came an EPA program where it, it was such a good program that it became not only the EPA program for the hospital, but for the university. Yeah. I mean, there were just so many great things that came out of that program. So I knew, I knew early that I could do a systems kind of thing. And I was speaking about the work of this group. And I realized that I had the attention of the nation, that nobody else had done this. And I always understand that it's not just about me. It's about you know, who you work with. It's never about just you. But I would have the ability to have the platform. And that meant I had a responsibility to deliver and to let mm. people know about what who nurses are, what we can do, and how incredibly fantastic we are. So that's when I first realized it. My, I then decided that I would um, become part of the American Nurses Association and start to run for offices. And I was all the way to being vice president of the Ohio State Nurses Association. And then I took a position down in North Carolina as dean. And 
decided that I wanted to be on the board of the American Nurses Association. I had to start all over again because they said, we don't know you, you're from the North, you're a carpetbagger. <laughs> uh, so I had to go back and do everything all over as if I was new, but by doing it, I learned, I met so many people in North Carolina that by the time I was running for president, everybody was supporting me, Yeah, the whole state. And they were very good to me. And so when I became president of ANA, that's when I really had the national platform to step off. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> where, uh, you know, you mentioned um, the ANA, what do we, what do you think we need to do to have more participation? Because we have over 4 million nurses. Um, I think the ANA right now is somewhere around maybe 400,000 members. Um, what do we need to do to get more nurses engaged with this national um, um, institution that is our representative? I mean, when they lobby, they lobby for the 4 million nurses. They're not lobbying for the few hundred thousand. So what do you think would be the strategy to get more nurses engaged or more nurses involved uh, or in membership at least? Um, You know, the thing for me is that I kind of know the nursing mentality. I'm a loner. (laughs) Basically, you know, that's where I started. I was not an organizational person. Yeah, I believed I had enough to do in life. I have time for organizations. You know, it's a lot of work. And I don't and I and I'm I'm not an outgoing person naturally. I mean, I'm very backwards at time. <laughs> so I think many nurses are just trying to keep their head above water, take care of their families, work their jobs. And so they're very busy. So the idea of being involved in an association, it's a very difficult thing for them to even perceive, think about as I don't have the time. I mean, yeah. that's And my thought is, is that we have to make space for those at various levels of where they are, that when you have young kids and uh, you're working on your doctorate or your master's, you may not have time. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can't have some level of membership, some way of belonging, some kind of. And then as you grow in your career, you're going to need that association. You'll find that there's a use for it. And so to have. opportunities along the way for various ways to be involved. And I think that ANA is starting to do some of that. I see it in a better way. I think the magnet study, the magnet whole and credentialing is a great way of getting people involved and getting them more um, tied up into the profession. I always wanted, and this was my own personal thing, I always wanted ANA to open up to licensed practical nurses. Mm, Very true. Because my belief was that ANA should be a house for all nurses. Mm. And that to me is the diversity and the inclusion model that would be inclusive of our colleagues. If you, our LPNs report to RNs, right. they're ours. We have to have some way of collaborating and working with them and let them know how we value them and they value us. It, there has to be some place to build the relationship professionally. There is no place at this time. So I had always hoped, well, there is a place, it's called the National League for Nursing, but it's not at the level of every nurse. These are for educators. The NLN is for all nurses, but ANA is still only for the RN. And I would just love to see it open its doors to include our LPN colleagues because 
there's just not enough nurses to go around. And anybody who puts their hands on patients, I have a concern about. I want to see them professionally develop. I want to make sure they're staying on top of the latest information available. I want good things because they're going to be touching patients and they're going to be reporting to me on my license. So it would seem that we, we would find a way to put our arms around our licensed practical, licensed vocational nurse colleagues. Very true. Thank you for that. Um, I want to take a, just a few minutes and, and talk to you about um, your current work uh, and the work that you're doing internationally. We don't see a lot of nurses uh, that are involved in on several continents. So how are you? First of all, where do you have the time? And then uh, what? how do you think um, nursing on a, on a global level, uh, what does nursing look like on a global level? Because uh, you're on, on the US and you're doing a lot of work in Europe. Um, yeah. How is that? Well, the way that I got involved in Europe was by being president of the American Nurses Association and going to the International Council of Nurses. Mm big event and they have a big event every two years this one is going to be in montreal in july so we'll be all going and that's one way that i end up doing a lot because i go to places where <laughs> it's international I, you cannot be international just by sitting at home you know I, I know that virtual is good and zoom does work but you actually have to build relationships globally in order to make that happen. So there has to be, in addition to the wonderful technology that unites the world, you also every now and then have to put some physical presence in with the um, interaction and the transactions. So I've been fortunate that I lived in England for six years and I worked as the general secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. And when I went there, there were 320,000 nurses in the Royal College of Nursing. And when I left, there were 400,000. Wow. So we grew while I was there. And it's the largest professional union of nurses in the world. Um, because of that, I was also involved with the uh, European Federation of Nurses, which had about 25 countries in it. And I was the vice president. Wow. And so we used to do our meetings in French and English. I mean, that's and, and then I do a lot of group relations work that is international. So I used to work with the French who are interesting, wonderful people. And I worked with all kinds of other groups of people around the world. Um, and it was nothing for me not to be doing something in Korea or to be something in Japan. And, and still there is. And it took my little Kentucky, small town, Elizabethtown, courthouse sitting right in the middle of town where you can get lost just going around it and around it and around to the international stage. Wow. And I, I, I realized that I had something to offer even beyond the US. And that nursing was the same in so many ways that we all care about the patients and the people we care for. And that we're all committed and when I say all, I know there's the aberrant one. So I'm not loosey-goosey about us. You know, I understand that not all of us, and none of us are perfect. So I got that. But we do bring something about that caring for society and the healing of society and the integrity that we bring to the work we do. That is so special. And we know how to collaborate with other disciplines. We know how to help physicians work more effectively. We know how to bring in the services that a patient needs 
and how to bring a team together to provide good care and how to work with a family that's not speaking to each other. And we, we know how to make the system work for healing and the journey of life from cradle to grave. Right. So I am just so in awe of what we do and to find out when I was in Europe, they would say, well, how do you compare the US nurses with the UK nurses? And I say, well, you know, it's a different ball game. Here you have, everybody deserves care. It, it's not an issue. You have the NHS, the National Health Service. Everyone gets care. There, healthcare is a right. Here, healthcare is a right. There, it's a privilege in the US. You have to pay for it. Right. And so every time we get closer in the US to providing services to people, like healthcare, a basic right to living. I get happier about it. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it is. It is strange how in the U.S. we treat it as a privilege uh, to have healthcare. Um, so, it's an interesting concept. Now, I want to. <clears throat> you mentioned nurses um, as revenue generators versus a cost center, as, as you mentioned before. Um, what, is, what does nursing have to do or what does somebody else have to do to um, advocate for nurses to be seen as revenue generators? Well, let me tell you what the NLN is doing. Our basic model is called a mission-aligned business model. So that basically means that we have a business model, but it's aimed at our mission. Right. which means promoting excellence in nursing education to build a strong and diverse nursing workforce to advance the health of the nation and the global community. That's our mission. Our revenue generators, our initiatives, our programs are all aimed at that mission. That's our North Star. We know where we're going. But the, the mission aligned business model means that I expect to generate revenue. And I expect to generate different types of revenue. I don't just have one revenue stream. I don't just rely on membership. I should not have to, every time I want to do something new and innovative, go to my membership and say, I've got to raise your dues because we want to do this exciting thing. I should have different strands of revenue coming in that provide me with uh, seed money to do the innovation, to do the creativity piece, to do the technology piece for nursing, to and so that's the way I run the organization. And that's the way I would have run the hospitals. Mm. It's just my belief that we need to generate revenue and that healthcare is such a central issue. Other people should pay for it. We've got these corporate giants who are very interested in healthcare and some of them have businesses. For them, it's about this is where they make their money. So why shouldn't they give some money to the organizations like nursing and schools of nursing and hospitals where the care their employees? I mean, nursing is in the fabric of the whole U.S., the whole world. So why shouldn't others help fund it? And that's my job, to help people understand I can show you how to be useful, how you can give to nursing and even feel good about it. I don't know how you made your money, but I can tell you a way that you can feel good about the money that you give away. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Um, do you think um, nursing limits itself by not being in, in positions that actually make the decisions for hospital? Like, is there a reason 
do you think it's self-limiting by by us not seeing more nurses in those executive roles and more nursing running organizations? Well, you see, I what I believe is that there are a lot of nurses running organizations, a lot of healthcare organizations. They don't claim to be nurses anymore. Right. It's a hidden factor, you know. Well, I used to be a nurse, and I just don't buy that. I think we should have a welcoming home party for all those nurses who are denying that they're nurses. Right. Once a nurse, always a nurse, and they make the best administrators because they understand the system from the bottom up, from the inside out. They understand between twelve and six in the morning what goes on, and how the care has to be consistent, and how. After surgery, people have difficulty sleeping in the middle of the night and they may be up. I mean, we know we are 24 hours. We, so when we move into those administrative positions, we are better administrators than anybody I know. I just want us to own the fact that we're still a nurse. Mm, very true. Very true. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> um, I'm just cognizant of the time. I want to make sure that I we have some time to speak about your role with the uh, NLN and the work that you're doing. So uh, we already touched on it a little bit, but I wanna give you an opportunity to talk about the NLN and the work that it's doing and yeah. where where your vision is gonna take you. Yeah, I am so excited about, okay, first of all, competency-based education is incredibly important. We have a, um, a resuscitation quality initiative on in terms of, you know, resuscitation basically. And basically the research was done by nurses, Dr. Marilyn Orman and her colleagues. And that said that if you learn resuscitation on a regular basis, like every other month or every three months, you retain it better than once or every two years. Hmm. Your skills is better. You do better resuscitation. And that means you save lives. So we're working on that whole competency base that really, we've got to redo how we think of educating people and educating nurses and others, not just nurses, but others. So I'm very much into competency-based. And that it, just because it takes Bev Malone two years to do something, surely Ann, it only takes her a year. So why would we hold, why would we do the same thing? Why couldn't Shirley Ann move on before Bev Malone? So I'm, I'm really into that. The second thing, the big, another big agenda item is climate. I see the world frying or, or bl being blown away by a tornado or being frozen, but I, overflowed by flood. I just see climate as one of the most central issues about the well-being of the earth. How can I talk about healthy people without talking about a healthy planet? So to me, this is, I, and nurses are still waking up to it. They don't understand that it's a health issue. It is a social determinant of health. And um, so that's part of my job. I'm, I'm signed up for climate. And the NLN is signed up for climate. Another one that is so very important to me is technology, is uh, the whole AI. And we're looking at putting together a research center focusing on AI. And we'll be one of the first ones in the country to do that in association work. Uh, we're one of the first ones in the country to have a, an institute for social determinants of health, another area of focus for me. And I do this by getting other people to join us in funding the, these institutes and centers. I believe that somebody should, would be very interested in helping us pay for it. 
And I, that's what I found. And that's how I fund it. I don't go to my members and say, I want to do this. Will you pay? No, no. I, I bring them. I say, this is what healthcare needs. This is what nurse educators need. Let's find the money. Let's find a corporation who's willing to partner with us in supporting this. So let's find a university. Let's find some monies to do that. And that's my job. I'm a finder of money. And I don't mind that at all. So it's climate, it's competency-based, it's social determinants of health, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and structural racism. These are all incredibly important issues. And when I look at the future of nursing, that's where we're going. And then, of course, the, the older adults, the most vulnerable populations, the most marginalized populations, how do we make sure that we are giving excellent care? And the nursing shortage, workforce issues, that's another one of my big ones. And I believe wholeheartedly, you brought up some things. How do you keep nurses? You keep them by understanding that so many of them, that when they get on the units, in hospitals, for example, it becomes their world. This is where they work. And how that little unit operates and how people are treated while they're working makes a huge difference. And we can talk about, well, you know, it's overpowering the work. Well, a lot of it has to do with whether they're functioning as a team and whether they feel included, whether they belong, whether they end up crying every, you know, I used to be a director of nursing. I know they come, some of them cry every shift. I had one nurse manager in neonatal intensive care. She would come in my office at least to cry every month. I mean, and it would be boo hoo 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 hoos. And I, it's because we don't focus enough on, on the quality of the environment in which we work. So part of my job is to help with that. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe I have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I wake up every morning thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do today? And the reason that I get up is I know that there are things for me to do and that I do it well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, if there was a, not that if, there, there will be a young nurse listening to this podcast uh, shortly. Um, if you could give them a message based on your life experience um, and being the person you have become over, over time, uh, what would that advice be? Yeah. Love nursing. Love yourself. Practice loving yourself. It's person in role in system. So you are a person, but you're in a nursing role and you're in the system of the work wherever you are. And you have to be appreciative of who you are. And that means you have to take care of yourself. So I would say to every nurse out there, and then if you want to get to say, oh, I, would, I think I might want to do what Beth Malone does. I saw her and she's not as tall as I thought she was. <laughs> I think I'm taller than her and I think I could do more than her. I would say, yes, you sure can. Put one foot in front of the other foot. Don't stop, colleagues. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other foot. I couldn't see when I was 21 where I would be. I had no idea that I would be here and that I would have done some of the things that I've been able to do. It surprises me when I, and I, sometimes you can only see when you look back. You sometimes looking forward, you can't see it. And it's okay not to see everything, but you put one foot in front of the other foot. You put, you'll see the doors open. 
there's this um, cartoon of uh, a New Yorker little girl and she's standing in front of her door in New York City and there are multiple locks on the door. Kathy is the cartoon. And Kathy says, opportunity knocks, but by the time I get the door unlocked, it's gone. And so I would say to that nurse out there, when opportunity knocks, colleague, be ready to step through the door. Be ready to open the door. Don't procrastinate. Don't say, oh, I got to go away and think about it. And it's going to take me a year or two to do that. It'll be gone by the time you get back to it. Take the opportunities that are presented to you and then get you a mentor. Make sure you have, and not just one, you need multiple mentors. If you want to be international, get you an international mentor. If you want to be a psych nurse, get a psychiatric nurse mentor. If you want to be a a community worker, get you someone who's working in the community. You need multiple mentors for all of your dreams of who you want to be. Very true. Very true. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, I want to give you any any last... uh comments, words that you'd like to share before we sign off? Yeah, I would just say, love yourself. Practice it. Work on it. Say good things to yourself in the morning when you get up. Oh, Bev Malone, I like you so much. Yeah, you do some simple things sometimes, but I'm going to forgive you because this is a new day. (laughs) I'm going to give it our best shot at it. Be good to yourself, colleagues. And sometimes it'll feel like no one else is being, but you should be good to yourself. Mm. Very true. Very true. Wise words. Thank you. Thank you for this. Uh, uh, I have been incredibly privileged and honored to be joined by Dr. Beverly Malone um, with the NLN. uh, And I look forward to bringing you this podcast and future podcasts. So thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.